This morning, uh, we are going to mostly wrap up our study of the covenants, but there'll be a little change of schedule that I want to explain first. Craig Nelson uh, was kind enough to teach uh, Sunday two weeks from now so that I can focus my attention on being a youth camp counselor in the week that comes just before that. Uh, so next Sunday, instead of starting Romans and then having a gap, uh, talked with the elders, and what we determined to do is we're going to do a message on the Lord's Supper as the sign of the new covenant. So that'll be kind of the last thing we do with the new, with the, the covenants, and I'm excited about that message as well. But this morning we're really going to going to do a, kind of a wrap up of this series per se, and here's where we're go, here's where uh, we'll be going first. We're going to see that the heart of the covenants is relationship with God. There are a lot of different things that we could do to talk about tying up the covenants and kind of wrapping up the covenants, but this is the focus that I believe is at the very heart of all the covenant promises. In keeping with that, we're going to see what God says about his inheritance and about our inheritance. We'll see that his inheritance, he declares, is us and that our inheritance is him. We'll see what God has to say about the place of relationship and fellowship with God. And that will bring together all that God has said about the land, about the tabernacle, and about the temple. We'll see that the relationship that is the culmination of all the covenants is had only one way, and that is in Jesus Christ. You've heard that phrase a lot during this series, and you'll hear it more today. And finally, we're going to spend some time talking about why all this matters. <laughs> uh, and, and at that point, I really am asking that our young folks uh, be listening. This is a lot, again, to cover, but uh, if, you'll, if you'll bear with me, I believe it will, uh, it will make sense. First, the thesis or main point of this message is very simple. And once God burns it into your heart, it is both profound and transforming. If you get it, it defines your life. If you don't get it, then you are without a doubt missing that which is life indeed. And you're satisfying yourself with a crummy imitation of life that truly cannot satisfy. Here's the thesis. The heart of all that God has promised to his children is relationship with him. Every form of true blessing, every form of real provision, every relationship with other believers, every frustration that you must endure, every painful chastisement that you receive from the hand of God, all are graciously designed by God to glorify himself while drawing you into deeper relationship with himself. And the relationship part isn't just a nice side effect of his work to glorify himself. It is integral to how he manifests his character. And it's at the heart of that which delights him. It's part of his very nature, as we'll see when we get to that point in the message. In Genesis chapter 17, God restates and expands on the covenant promises that he made to Abram in chapter 12 and and some in chapter 15. In chapter 17, God changed Abram's name to Abraham. He told him that that the uh, promised seed would not come 
through Sarah's handmaiden Hagar, but would come through Sarah herself. And in that same passage, God gave Abraham the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision. In that passage, God says the following to Abraham, verses 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And here's the heart of the covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of their sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Now, at first glance, this may this may not seem particularly personal in nature. It, uh, it may look no different than a king declaring his sovereignty over his people, his subjects, like, I will be your king and you will be my subjects. But when this same promise shows up in the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant, the wording begins to sound very personal in nature, even reminiscent of the description that, of God's relationship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In Leviticus 26, verses 11 and 12, God says, Moreover, I will make my dwelling place among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Now, the blessings, as we saw before, under the bilateral Mosaic covenant, were presented as conditional, dependent upon Israel's obedience to the law, but as we saw in that, in that covenant, it ends up not being bilateral after all because God is the one who fulfills it. He fulfills all of its conditions and he does so in Jesus Christ. Christ is the law keeper. And we comply with God's standard of the law by being in Christ. When this same promise, I will be your God and you will be my people, shows up in God's declaration of the new covenant... In Jeremiah 31, we see yet again that God's intention is not an impersonal, merely authoritative relationship with his covenant people. Under his new covenant of unmerited grace, he causes his people to know him in a very personal way. Verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares Yahweh, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know me, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. When God promises to make himself our God and to make us his people, He's talking about making us to truly know him, about bringing us into a genuine relationship with him. The language of the Davidic covenant regarding this relationship is perhaps the most personal of all. God told David that when his days were complete, he would give him a seed. And he said of that that descendant of David, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And he said, my loving kindness shall not depart from him. A father-son relationship is how God describes the bond that he promises to establish between himself and the offspring of David. 
And as we saw in our study of the Davidic covenant, the preeminent seat of David is Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus Christ, it is in our identification with him, that we who believe in him come to be sons and daughters of the living God. In his high priestly prayer of intercession, on behalf of all whom the Father had already drawn to faith in him and all those who would later come to faith in him, Jesus made this very defining statement about the essence of true life. And to me, this is one of the most pro- profound statements in all of Scripture. Jesus, These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son that the Son may glorify thee. Even as thou gave him authority over all mankind, that to all to whom... To all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And then verse 3. This is eternal life. You want to know what life is? Here it is. That they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's life, as God defines it. And in that passage, why did God grant Jesus authority over all mankind? so that he might give eternal life to all those whom the Father had given to be his. And what is the essence of that eternal life? In one word, it's relationship. Relationship with the Father and the Son, that we might personally know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Everything that God promises to his covenant people in every one of the covenants, is in order to bring us into relationship with himself. Again, in his high priestly prayer, in this prayer that that my brother Mark read, was the one that was offered up to God by our Savior the night that he was betrayed into the hands of his accusers and executioners. In that prayer, and I'm just going to look at portions of this, he prayed that we, those who belong to him, may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us. Verse 22, he prayed that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Verse 25, he said, although the world has not known thee, I have known thee. And he says, I have made thy name known to them and will make it known. Now, what did we say in previous sessions on this series? What is the name of God about? That's a real question. What is the name about? It's about who he is. It's his character. The name of God is his essence, his character, who he is. And Jesus says, I'm going to make My Father known. You remember what Jesus kept telling people who asked to see the Father? He said, you want to know the Father? Look at me. Jesus showed us who God the Father is. God's highest calling to us is the call to be in relationship and fellowship with Him. There are a multitude of passages that we could look at in God's Word concerning that marvelous calling. Uh, we could talk about the marriage imagery in Hosea and in the New Testament. 
all the way to the book of Revelation. We could talk about God's references in the prophets in which he calls his people his own sons and daughters. We could see in Exodus 4 how God calls Israel his firstborn son. God's intention to draw his people into intimate relationship with himself is everywhere in Scripture. But this series is an overview, so lest I miss the glorious forest by staring too long at the lovely trees, uh, we'll press on. Let's talk about God's inheritance. All this ties to this idea of relationship. One of the most beautiful ways in which the scriptures present our calling into relationship with God is in terms of a treasured inheritance. I'm going to put several verses up here, and the part in green, the word word own possession or treasured possession is the exact same Hebrew word in each of these verses. Exodus 19, this is God's words to Israel at at Mount Sinai just before he gave them the Ten Commandments. He said, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's the same thing that Peter says about all of the church in 1 Peter 2. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 14, 2, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deja vu, right? Deuteronomy 26, 18. And Yahweh has declared, has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession. And he's promised you, uh, as he has promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments. Now, the word translated own possession or treasured possession is, again, the same word in all these passages. And it has a connotation of a highly valued personal possession. In First Chronicles 29.3, when David's talking about all the, the contribution from the, from the people of Israel for the building of the temple... David then throws in his contribution, his personal contribution. He throws in 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver that were his for the building of the temple that was to be constructed by his son Solomon. It was David's own personal property and was of exceedingly, exceedingly great value. Similarly, in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 8, King Solomon, David's son, speaks of the silver and gold and the treasures, the treasured possessions of kings and provinces that he collected for himself as he was seeking to discover the boundaries of earthly pleasure and prosperity. He not only amassed fortunes in silver and gold that he gathered from other countries, he took, (laughs) he received as tribute the personal treasures of the kings whom he conquered. Their prized possessions. God says that we who are his chosen people are his treasure. His treasure. We are his highly valued possession purchased by him at the cost of his son's blood so that we can have relationship with him for eternity. 
in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, and this is a messianic prophecy and it's Messiah who's speaking in this passage. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me, has sent me to you. Messiah is speaking. And the Lord will possess Judah as what? His portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. The word translated portion here is the word that's used in numerous passages to describe the inheritance of property within the land that God allotted to each tribe and clan and family in Israel. But God declares here that his inheritance is not real estate. It is the people whom he will make to dwell in the land when he fulfills his promise of redemption and restoration. He says very clearly here that in that day, his people will consist not only of Judah, but of people from many nations who will join themselves to the Lord. We who belong to Christ are God's treasure, his treasured possession, and we are God's inheritance. But in order to make us his, he has to make us holy. In order to bring us into intimate relationship and fellowship with him, he has to make us worthy of his presence, right? I'm going to put on the screen the same four verses that we looked at a moment ago when we were talking about God's inheritance, but with different highlighting so we can see how consistently our calling into relationship with God is tied to our call to be holy. The verses here are Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, Deuteronomy 14.2, and Deuteronomy 26.18. Exodus 19, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Deuteronomy 7.6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And then he says, you are called to be my possession among all the peoples. Deuteronomy 14.2, Pretty much a repeat of of that verse. And then Deuteronomy 26, 18. The Lord has declared you to be his people, a treasured possession as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments. The word holy, of course, means set apart from that which is common. Set apart to God. So in one sense, the very fact that Israel is called God's people makes them holy. But the declaration that God's people are to be holy is not merely descriptive, it is prescriptive. That means it is required of all those who belong to God that we be holy. Leviticus 19.2 Therefore you are to be holy as I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Because God is holy, we cannot know Him and we cannot be related to Him until he makes us worthy of his presence. We have to be holy in order to be his. When we looked at the uh, Mosaic Covenant, the law of Moses, we said that the requirement, the standard of God's law, is his own holiness 
and character, right? It's not some compromise. God doesn't grade on the curve. I know you all are pleased that your teachers do, but God doesn't. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it crystal clear that this requirement is absolute. It's not a compromise. In Matthew 5, in concluding his statement about what kind of righteousness passes muster with God, Jesus said, therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We must be holy if we are to be his. How do we get that way? Well, we've talked a lot about that in the covenants. He makes us holy. He imparts his holiness to us. That's the only thing that allows us ever to stand in his presence. Another question. Why does God choose to make us his in the first place? Why should God bother with the people who, by their nature, are utterly unholy? I want to look at a few things in this regard because I think this is something about the nature of God that's really important for us to get. I call it the outreaching essence of God. Again, John 17, verses 20 to 26. God, Jesus prayed to the Father. He said that they, those who belong to him, who were given to him by the Father, may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be in us. He says that they may be one just as we, the Father and the Son, are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity. And he says he is going to make us to know the character of our Father. All right. For all eternity... For all eternity, past, present, future, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have known a perfection of love and unity and fellowship. See, relationship has always existed within the Godhead. It's not something new to God when he draws us in. Relationship is part of the very character and essence of God from eternity to eternity. And relationship is inherently extensive. That is, it reaches outside of self. Love is inherently outreaching. Grace is inherently outreaching. Mercy is inherently outreaching. And these are all attributes of the very essence of God's character. It is inherent in God's character to extend beyond himself the knowledge and experience of all that is essentially and uniquely true of him. So in God's word, we find amazing statements such as this one that the Apostle John makes in 1 John 4, verses 7 to 10 about the extension to us of God's essential attribute of love. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And every, everyone who loves is born of God and, get this, knows God. What the world calls love is not what God calls love, guys. He says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And I'm going to skip down to verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. This we know about God. This is what we know of God. It's part of what we know of God is love. It's his love, not ours. Love is of the essence of who God is, and he extends it to us and through us to others. What we pay forward by loving others as he has loved us is not merely a kindness, it's a person, God himself. For the believer, love of others is inextricably tied to who we are, not just to what we do. Because it is inextricably part of who our God is. Does that make sense? God declared before the foundation of the world to call us to himself. To make us his treasured possession. His inheritance. He makes us holy in order to make us his. And he does all of this because it is his essential character to do so. We are God's treasured inheritance, and he is our treasured inheritance. In Psalm 16, David says this. I love this psalm. This is just a portion. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in thee. I said to Yahweh, thou art my God. I have no good besides thee. In verse 5, he said, the Lord, Yahweh, is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. And then verse 11, beautiful verse. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life in thy presence. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forever. The lot and the lines that David is talking about in verses 5 and 6 are part of a... a, a metaphor that he's using, and he's talking about the inheritance within the land of promise. If you were, if you were from the tribe, say, of Simeon, Michael, if you were from the, or John, if you were from the tribe of Simeon, you're getting taller, so you're starting to look like your brother. Um, you would know in the book of Numbers, there was a piece of land allocated to your your tribe, your clan, your family. And it was allocated by the casting of lots. And the lines or boundaries were determined, and then when the lot was cast, that piece of land was yours. And it was yours from then on. It belonged to your family. As I just mentioned, the land of promise is is spoken of in the Old Testament as the inheritance that God gave his people. But David uses the picture of the allotment of the land as a metaphor of the true inheritance that God has given to us, which is not real estate, it is himself. He says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. My heritage is beautiful to me. The lines, the lot, it has fallen to me in pleasant places because I am related to my heavenly Father. God is our portion, our inheritance, just as we are his. 
And this is the same way the New Testament presents it. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, another favorite passage of mine. Maybe I'm not supposed to have favorite passages, but I do. When I was a very young believer, this one just rocked my world. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of, your, of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now there's a lot in there. It says you heard the message, you believed the message, and God sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And then it says that Holy Spirit was a down payment of something greater. It was earnest money. It was the first part of something that God guarantees to give you the rest of. God gave us His Holy Spirit as a down payment of the inheritance that we have, and that inheritance is Him. It should tell us something that the down payment is a person, right? The Holy Spirit. And the rest of our inheritance is a person. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God says that He gave us this glorious down payment with a view to the redemption of what? Of His own possession to the praise of His glory. He gave us the Holy Spirit as a down payment that guarantees our inheritance, which is Him, in order to secure His inheritance, which is us. Is that cool? I think that's cool. I want to talk a little bit about the place, the promise of place, and the connection between that promise and the promise of relationship. This is powerful. As we've seen throughout this series, all four of the major covenants talk about the land. The land that was first promised to Abraham, then passed on the promise to Isaac, then to Jacob, and to their seed. We just saw in Psalm 16 that God, excuse me, that David used the allotment of the land of promise as a picture of our true inheritance, which is not a place but a person. At the end of the last message, I mentioned that the whole point of the earthly tabernacle and later the temple was the presence of God in the midst of his people. In Exodus 29, verses 43 to 46, a passage about the continual burnt offering that went up in smoke and fire at the altar in front of the place of meeting, day and night, constantly, God says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory, my presence. He says in verse 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. For what reason? For what goal? That I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh, their God. And in his high priestly prayer that we've looked at a few times, Jesus talked about bringing us in verse 24, John 17, bringing us to the place in which he will dwell together with us. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. In order that what? That they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. And Jesus says in this prayer, he loves us with the love that he has for his son. In John 14, 1 through 3, before this, shortly before Jesus went into the hands of his executioners, when he was talking with just his disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem, 
He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am, that where I am, there you may be also. The promise of place of God in the midst of his people is the promise of the undoing of the curse. It is the promise of the restoration of Eden. It is the restoration of a sweet relationship and fellowship between God and us as his treasured possession. It is our God walking with us in the garden, in the cool of the day, with our hearts laid bare before him without shame, because he has made us holy. Do you know how much God loves you? His entire plan of redemption throughout the ages has been in order to bring you into relationship with himself. And that relationship is your life. I pray with all my heart that you'll get that. All of us that will get that. And we have this relationship only one way. In Jesus Christ alone. One of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. Psalm 16 again. Um, I don't have it to put up. But in Psalm 16, David was speaking on behalf of Jesus. It's a messianic psalm. In Acts 2 and uh, Paul, excuse me, Peter in Acts 2 and Paul in Acts 13, which I believe was read this morning, both say that when David spoke in this psalm about how God would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay, he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Messiah, Jesus David, speaking words of Jesus a thousand years before Jesus' first coming, declares that God is the portion of his, that is, Christ's inheritance. And it is in Jesus Christ that we have God as the portion of our inheritance. The one and only reason that we have all the marvelous things that God has promised in these covenants is because Jesus had them first. And eternally. And we have them in Him. Uh, it's impossible to overstate that. <laughs> and it's hard to, it's hard to lay hold of that, but it is so foundational to who we are as the redeemed of God. In John 17.10, Jesus said to his father, All things that are mine are yours, and all that are yours are mine. The one and only way that we become heirs of the covenant promises is in Christ. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sorry, keep I thinking I've got that and I don't. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's always and only been one way of access into the presence of God, right? There's only one high priest who has entered within the veil. There's only one who is worthy to stand before the Father. There is only one who has kept the law 
perfectly. There is only one whose character meets the righteous requirement of God. There is only one who is holy. He has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 If you are not found in him, you cannot stand in the presence of the Father. Now, why does all this matter? I've been teasing you with that slide. What value is this whole study of the covenants and all this talk about relationship and fellowship with God? Is this just esoteric theology or does it really matter to you? Beloved, nothing matters more. The calling and priority of your personal relationship with God determines two things that define how you live. It determines what you must pursue and what you must avoid. If you want real life instead of crap, and I'm sorry if you think that word is too coarse, but it's not my word, it's Paul's. In Philippians 3, verses 7 through 10 and 12 through 14, a portion of the passage up, Paul says, Whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of what? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, And count them all but rubbish in order that I may may gain Christ. The word rubbish is way too weak. It's a very mild translation of a forceful Greek word. It means excrement. It is the word Josephus used when he spoke of starving Christians picking through sewers to find bits of undigested food during the siege of Jerusalem. Verse 9 that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Why? That I may know Him. Verse 12. In order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. And what is that? (laughs) To know Him. This one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul makes a very stark and forceful contrast here. Which do you choose, life or excrement? If you want to truly lay hold of life, then everything that isn't life must be forgotten, forsaken, and left behind in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 12 through 17, Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you really live. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but a spirit of adoption as sons, 
by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. (laughs) And then, beautiful statement. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And look at this. If children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may, be, we may be glorified with him. Again, the contrast is stark. Death or life. Slave or son. When Paul says you're an heir of God, he means exactly that. <laughs> He's not saying your inheritance is the things that God chooses to give you. He's saying your inheritance is God. You're a joint heir with Christ of his Father. Your inheritance is a person. Your life is a person. So how do you experience life? Only through relationship with God. I know it sounds like a broken record. I want you to get this. God wants us to get this. That relationship then becomes everything. To the exclusion of everything else. If you want to experience real life, then building and nurturing and clinging to that relationship becomes your one legitimate obsession. Which do you choose? To live as a slave or as a son? Now this isn't a guilt trip. It isn't something that anyone should have to impose on you. This is a choice between life and death, treasure and dung. It's supposed to be an obvious choice. (laughs) I want to wrap up by talking briefly about why God does certain things to you that you probably at first glance wish he didn't do. God is not confused about what constitutes real life for you. You might be, but he's not. He's a perfect father. So he's not planning to let you talk him into changing his agenda to suit your wishes. Do you know what it is that makes it impossible for us as believers to find well-being in anyone or anything except God? It is God. God makes it impossible. The last thing God's going to do for you (laughs) is grant you joy and peace and rest when you're looking to yourself or to a situation, or to another person for joy, or peace, or rest, or any other good thing. To allow you to do so would be cruel on God's part, because he knows that he is the only source of the real version of any of those things. When Abraham, following Sarah's lead, which wasn't a smart thing to do, sought to, uh, shall we say, facilitate God's promise of a covenant son by hooking up with Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, did God give him what he sought? No. God said, in effect, the son you got through your own contrivances will not be the heir of my covenant. The covenant blessings will come from me not from you, and they will come in such a way that you and your wife won't be able to take credit for them. And then God sent Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son by Hagar, away 
far away from him and from Isaac, the covenant son. Why would God do such a thing? It's very simple. He doesn't want his people to believe the lie that says we have anything to do with securing well-being and blessing for ourselves. My young brothers and sisters, will God let you be happy when you're seeking satisfaction and blessing in people or activities or situations that move you away from him? Since your relationship with him is the only true source of blessing, why would he? Why would he? If you believe that he loved you enough to lay down, actually to lay the full weight of your sins on his one and only son so that you could have life, why would he let you get your way when you're replacing real blessing with garbage? How would that be loving? When the kings that God had appointed over his people in Judah sought help from Egypt to avoid his corrective judgment that was intended to humble them and to drive them back to him, did God let their plan succeed? No. Did God preserve them? Yes. Did God remain faithful to them? Yes. Did God restore them back to the land in his timing and on his terms? Yes. Will God ultimately fulfill every covenant promise that he made to them and to us? Absolutely. Will the fulfillment of his promises be on our terms? Absolutely not. Will God bless you if you're his child? You bet. Will he bless you on your terms? Fortunately for you, there is no way that will ever happen. I promise you this. If you're paying attention, the older you get in the Lord, the more thankful you will be that he doesn't let you do things your way. God has placed real life right under your nose. Ephesians 1.3 says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. When? Already. And he won't let you find satisfaction in any counterfeit. Guys, the world is lying to you. The world is bombarding you with counterfeits. It's bombarding you with stuff that it says is life and it's garbage. And God is saying to you, you want life? I am your life. It's a gracious and merciful thing that God won't, you, won't let you be satisfied with less than him. Ultimately, we who believe in Christ will fully lay hold of all of the riches of our inheritance in him. He will cause us to lay hold of it, of this treasured relationship with him in all respects. But wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to wait until we were glorified to walk in sweet relationship and fellowship with the one who is our life? Here's God's call to you. Here is his call to you who believe in Jesus Christ as your one and only Savior. Are you ready? Believe in him as your one 
and only life right here, right now, and from now on. Loving Father, I pray that you burn these things into our hearts. Lord, we don't want the garbage that this world has for us. We want you. And everything that you've done, your whole plan of redemption, from the, from the time you decreed in Genesis 3 to crush the head of Satan by the seed of the woman, Messiah, your whole plan of redemption has been designed to create a people for your own treasured possession and to make us make yourself our treasured possession for eternity. To call us to yourself so that you can spend the rest of eternity pouring out upon us the surpassing riches of your kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. And Father, we acknowledge that you don't intend for that to be an insurance policy that kicks in when we die. You intend for this to define our lives now. Father, teach us Teach us to thirst after you. Teach us, open our spiritual eyes, Lord, so that when we see the garbage, we recognize it as such. And we know what real life is. I pray for these young people, Lord, who are growing up in a culture that is wicked beyond beyond imagination. That they will cling to you and they will be light It will be light for Jesus Christ all the days that they live on this earth because their relationship with you, Father, is life indeed. I pray this for us all in the name of our Savior, our Master, our life. Amen.